This morning from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went by the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private away from the crowd and put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the Word of God for the people of God. The people aren't listening. Did you notice that in our reading today? The first thing I want us to notice today is that the people are not listening to what Jesus is saying. Right in the beginning of the story, as we began to read, Mark makes it plain that Jesus has moved to a place, that He's gone away, that He wants to be alone, that He's on a retreat. He enters a house where He's hoping He can have some quiet time. But somehow the Word gets out, and this woman hears about it, and she comes to the house She asked him to heal her daughter. In a roundabout way, he says no. But she insists. She's not listening to what he is asking. She insists and begs him to heal her daughter. The second story follows a similar pattern. Again, Jesus is traveling apparently trying to get away from the crowds. They find Him anyway. They bring Him a man who is deaf, who needs to be healed, they think. Apparently, Jesus is reticent to do this healing as well because Mark tells us again, just as in the first story, they had to beg Him to get Him to heal the man. He receives the man, takes Him away from the crowd into private, and heals Him. But in each story, it appears that what has happened is not what Jesus intended. It was not what He was wanting to do with His time. Not where He wanted to focus His attention. But the people did not listen and came anyway. 
And as if that is not enough, by the time we get toward the end of the second story, in verse 36, Mark says a little more about how people responded. He says this, Then Jesus ordered them to tell no one. And what did they do? They went and told everybody. They are not listening. Mark tells us that. He says, the more Jesus ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They seem to be doing the opposite of what Jesus is asking of them in every occasion. I get a little frustrated sometimes with the disciples and people like this who don't seem to be listening to Jesus. And I think, now wouldn't we, if we were with Jesus and He told us what to do, we would do it right? Well... Maybe. I mean, we have some teachings of Jesus that we listen to sometimes. We obey sometimes. I begin to wonder how well we would do in terms of listening and obeying. The teachings of Jesus. I began to think how often do people these days ignore the teachings of Jesus. I just think about that invitation we make to people who are going to join the United Methodist Church. It's in our hymnals. Every United Methodist Church asks this of people if they want to unite with the congregation or become a member of the church. The pastor asks them, are you ready to participate here fully through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? And of course, if they're joining, as we join, we all say yes. But what happens after that? Some pray, some don't. Some attend, right? Some don't. Some give, others don't. Some serve, some don't. Some witness, some don't. That's a great summary in terms of prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. Is a great summary of what it means to follow Jesus. But it's clear to all of us that some do and some don't. Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. It seems Really easy, apparently, to simply ignore the teachings of Jesus, whether you are a Christian or not. Sometimes we do well. Sometimes we do not. Of course, it's easier to identify it when somebody else is not doing so well. The challenge really is to look at our own lives and decide how well we are doing in being a follower of Jesus. I think of that other teaching that Jesus shared. Apparently people were being fairly judgmental of others, and He said, here's the strategy. Look at the log in your own eye before you talk about the speck in someone else's. The wise thing to do if you want to judge, according to Jesus, is look at yourself. Look inside. Oh, easy to look outside. Better to look inside. And think about your own life. And maybe 
If we would do that, we would find a place or two that we could grow in our discipleship. Perhaps God would lead us in a way that we might become a more faithful follower of Christ. That we might know more abundant life as a follower of His. But there's a second significant thing here as well. The they we are talking about in this passage, the they that we are reading about are Gentiles. That's what Mark tells us. These people that are coming for healing and the crowds in this sense are Gentiles. He tells us specifically the, the woman is of Syrophoenician origin, which means she's not a Jew. She's from a different ethnic group than Jesus is. Mark makes a point of telling us that Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon and around the area of the Decapolis. We know from demographics, primarily non-Jewish areas. Not that Jews didn't live there, but the majority was a different ethnic group. The word translated here as Gentile is Hellenus from the Greek. You know the word probably Hellenistic or the Hellenist you read about sometimes in Scripture. It's the Greeks or those of a different ethnicity than Jesus and His disciples who are Jewish. And of course, it's important to know that because there are these prohibitions that Jesus and everybody else knows about Jews and Gentiles and they're not supposed to intersect. They're not supposed to interact. There's a rule that says a Jewish man is not to speak to a Gentile woman in public. Or have anything to do with her? There are prohibitions that say if you are Jewish and you interact or have any encounter with someone who's not Jewish, then you're unclean religiously. That is, you're not prepared for worship. Reminded me of the story you may remember. It's out of the book of Acts. It's about Peter. He's trying to lead the fledging church. And he has this dream, he says, where he feels like he's being offered food that is unclean. And he feels like God is telling him to eat it. And he says no the first time. It comes again, he says no again. The third time, he says no again. And as he awakes, he has the sense that God is telling him to be in ministry with Gentiles. And he cannot believe it. And then Acts says there's a knock at the door and it's some Gentiles. And they say, our boss has said that God has told him you are to come teach us. And Peter agrees to go. But when he gets there, the first thing he says, first to Cornelius who's invited him, but then he realizes Cornelius has gathered a crowd of Gentiles there. And Peter says to them, you yourselves know I should not even be here. It's against the rules for me to even speak to you. And then he goes ahead though and speaks with them and proclaims the gospel of Christ. So this second significant thing that I want us to notice here is that Jesus breaks His own religious rules. He breaks His own religious traditions and teachings to engage with people in need. 
That's disturbing to those of us who like order and structure when Jesus goes out of bounds like this. And he starts breaking his own religious rules. It makes us a little uncomfortable thinking that somehow this opens the door for anybody who might be a follower of Jesus to do the same. You see, Jesus is not doing this to cause confusion or to create trouble. He's not doing this to get attention focused on Himself. He breaks the religious rules to express the love of God. He breaks them to do what He believes is God's will. In this case, healing these two Gentiles who are beyond His group or outside of His sphere of influence if He was to follow His own religious teaching and traditions. These people are outsiders. They're sinners, if you will. They are people that no devout person in this time would affiliate or associate with or talk to And yet Jesus enters into ministry with them and expresses God's love and power to them through these healing experiences. So it's good news for those individuals, but it's good news for us as well. Because most of us are not of Jewish heritage. This proclamation about God being the creator of heaven and earth and loving us was in the Jewish circle, and Jesus is breaking that open, opening the door, if you will, for those of us who are Gentiles, who are not Jews. So Jesus is extending God's love to us. Jesus is proclaiming that God, even though we're outsiders, if you will, loves us too. It is in the heart of the Gospel as we read these stories about Jesus that He opens one door after another proclaiming that God loves every one of us and that God wants an individual relationship with each of us. When I read about Jesus, I find myself challenged to share God's love across these customary lines of acceptable and not acceptable, familiar and non-familiar, people like me and people not like me. It is a challenging thing to do, to follow Jesus when He does these radical acts of love in the name of God and breaks the rules by which the community has lived for centuries and centuries. I was reading a story recently about a man who grew up here in the United States a few decades ago while he's reflecting on his own experience with people who are different. His background is that he grew up a Methodist in Mississippi. In the summer he graduated from high school, he needed a job to earn some money to go to college. So he got a job with this seismograph company that hired him and a few others, would sign them in pairs to trucks to follow the geologists and others around who were going around drilling wells and dropping explosives 
and then watching the seismograph to see if the right rock formation was in that hole that would indicate maybe there's oil under this ground. Now, he said his job was not anything as sophisticated as that. He was just the muscle. He was just to go and pull the pipe out of the well after the engineers and the geologists had finished. He said, I was paired that summer with a man about twice my age. He had worked on these crews before, but he was a black man and I was a white kid. So the company put me in charge and they gave me the keys to the truck. I was the driver. And he says, on one particular hot summer Mississippi day, we got to the truck early in the morning, getting ready to go out to the wells that we had been assigned, and we realized that the water cooler, or the water can as we called it, had been stolen off the truck. And he said, I quickly made an executive decision that we would just get water or other refreshments at the next gas station. I announced my decision without a word My partner jumped out of the truck and ran around behind the shed. He came back with a rusty syrup can, went over to the tap and filled it with water, got back in the truck, set it in the floorboard, and didn't say a word. He said, I looked at that water as the rust was beginning to float on the surface, and it looked a little bit too shiny. Who knows what had been in that can And he said, I didn't say anything, but inside I was feeling a little superior thinking, who's ever going to drink out of that can? We started down the road. We got to the first well in just a few minutes. We went over to the well and we began to pull pipe and we got all the pipe out of there. It took us about an hour. He said, by the time we finished, we were both sweating so profusely we had sweated through our shirts. We got back into the truck, and he says, my partner picked up that can and took a long, slow drink. And I tried not to look too thirsty. He didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I thought, I'm going to get myself an ice-cold RC Cola when we get to that gas station right down the road. And we pulled out, and before we got to the gas station, we got to the next field where the next well was. We had to go pull some more pipes, so we pulled in there. But this one, there was a low spot. It was a little bit swampy, and on the way to the well, we got stuck. We had to use the winch from the truck and wrap it around a tree just to pull ourselves out two or three times just to get to the well. Then we pulled the pipe, and of course it was still swampy on the way back to the road, so we had to winch our way back across the swamp to get back to the road. He said, my partner got out to close the gate behind us, and when he jumped in the truck, I could see how terribly he was sweating. He was soaked. And I realized I had stopped sweating. He said, I knew just enough about heat stroke to know that I was in trouble. My partner picked up the can and took another long, slow drink. He said, by then I was trembling. I felt the headache coming on. My vision was beginning to blur. And I thought, I need a drink of that water. He said, I'd been taught. I had never in my life drunk from the same can or the same anything from any black person. 
But he said, I realized in that moment that I needed a drink of water way more than I needed my prejudice. And so I said to him, uh, um, could I, um, would you mind uh, if I had a drink out of your can? My partner said, no, sir, boss, go right ahead. And this is what he wrote about that. He says, my hands were trembling as I took the can. And despite the flex and oily water, it looked like the finest vessel of water I had ever seen. As I drank it, it hit me. This is the cup of salvation given for you. In my stark need, my partner became a priest to me. And I felt that I was being given life. And in a very literal sense, I was, he writes. The syrup can had become a chalice. There was something about the reality of that shared syrup can that shifted my sensibilities. It was more than an attitude adjustment. A connection between the Lord's Supper and racial walls of separation was clear to me. It would take me some time to learn how to say it better, but Robert Frost said that there is something that does not love a wall. For me, it was a syrup can chalice. Amen.